When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where today we're talking about names in Jacob in Israel and how things kind of work out for them when they go to Egypt. It's a little long. I'm sorry I went overboard today on the time. But also it's the feast of St. Oscar Romero, and we'll have a little bit about him as well. Thinking about his assassination and those who were responsible, that they will be brought to repentance and amendment of life. The Daily Office Lectionary skips over the list of names of all the people that went with Jacob back to Egypt. Um, they have really cool names if you want to, if you want to start, write a new baby name book. Um, I was helping clean up the, uh, the Louvier's house, the house that was destroyed with a tornado, and on their shelf, one of the shelves, there was a, a baby name book. Um, and I saw that and thought about parents buying those before they have kids and trying to pick a name that's, that everybody else isn't picking, but doesn't sound too weird or whatever they criteria they're using. Um, and people's names in the Bible are significant in that they often have meanings that are words, kind of like. There's a few names in English that are like this. Most of them are women's names, historically, like Rose, like Hope, like Faith, um, and a couple other examples I can think of at the top of my head. I'm trying to think if anybody here has a name that actually is a real word in English. It doesn't look like it <laughs> for today. Um, most of our names come from other languages. And they are names, and it's true in the Bible, too, that people had names that often meant words, but were also names in the way we think of as names as not being words, if that makes sense. And so this list of names of the children of Jacob, the grandchildren of Jacob, is very significant because the total number um, of his offspring that come to Egypt were 66 persons in all. Jacob, Abraham, we have Abraham who has one descendant, well, two if you count Ishmael, but one, Isaac. God has promised to make him a father of many nations. In fact, Abraham's name means father, great father, big father. And you know the story of how he has a child in his old age and Sarah as well. And Isaac... <clears throat> Um, has two children. It's not a lot when you think about it, when you've been promised to be the father of a great nation. They're twins, and they hate each other. Jacob and Esau, we've read that story before. And Jacob, because his father-in-law tricks him, marries two women on the same night, pretty much, uh, wakes up to having the wife that he was promised to be another woman, the Rachel's sister, Leah. He demands that he marry Rachel immediately as well. So in one night, he becomes the husband of two wives. 
and has 10 children with Leah and two with um, 10 sons with Leah two, and two sons with Rachel. There are other girl babies born. Tamar, I believe, is one of them, and there's others that are unnamed. So you can see the rapid expansion of this family in this one generation of Jacob, from Abram being two to 66. Um, And this number is significant because this is the number of people that go down to Egypt. And when they get to Egypt, they are welcomed. Jacob has this reunion with Joseph, and he sees with his own eyes and touches with his own hands his son that he thought was dead. He says again, I can die now for I've seen for myself that you are still alive. Um, We don't really talk like this in modern times. We are so terrified by the implications of old age um, as a people. And I'm really talking about young people here. Um, and there is ageism in our society that tells you to not acknowledge the fact of our chronology. Um, and yet Jacob, it talks like this. He says, I can die now. I've seen the last thing that I really needed to see to believe that God's promise was true. Notice how the names of, um, well, we'll leave I already talked about names, but God calls him Jacob, Jacob. He says another twist of the narrator, God summons Israel to go, or Abram, or Israel sacrifices to God, and then God calls him Jacob, Jacob. Again, Jacob is named Israel and Jacob at the same time. But the 66 number is important because as Jacob reunites with Joseph and then dies shortly after, um, there is this discussion of, um, of what they will do in Egypt. Egypt is, is historically one of the cradles of civilization in that the way the crop cycle worked in Egypt allowed for the mass production of food and specifically the mass production of wheat products. Um, civilizations, according to Jared Diamond, who I got to meet one time, um, the author of Guns, Germs, and Steel, points out that the only way to really develop a mass civilization, a large civilization with specialties where people are moving beyond the hunter gatherer, small um, bands and tribal and family groups to a large um, city where you have multiple professions that people have the leisure time to look up at the stars and write stuff down and stay up all night and think great thoughts and start schools and, serve in armies and other things that are beyond just like, let's provide for this daily subsistence. Um, You need a a large supply of a staple food product. In East Asia, you have rice um, being that staple food product, and you see civilization arising there pretty quickly. Um, In the Mesopotamian region, you have wheat that eventually gets to Egypt, and there's this perfect Um, situation in Egypt with the flooding of the Nile. Every year the Nile floods and the the fresh water goes through the Nile Delta and they capture that water. This amazing crop of wheat grows really rapidly 
they harvest it, and they have way more than they need, and they start exporting it. You can see in this story, um, long, long, long before the Romans ever show up in Egypt to also use that grain supply for their own civilization, long before that happens, um, they have an abundance, and they're able to help the neighbors and sell it and then get richer and employ more people. And you can see how this economy of scale works. Um, Whereas in the rest of the world, you're growing just enough to get by that year. Egypt is able to produce way more. And the dry climate means they can store the wheat for a much longer period of time. I mean, you can go there and find mummies today that are still there under the ground in the dry climate. Um, it's a good place for that sort of thing. And so they, the, this tribe of Jacob, this family of Jacob of 66 persons, has this little interview with the Pharaoh. And they're told, they're told what to say. Kind of like when you go to a party and somebody, your, the person you're going with says, you know, don't talk about Bruno. Or we don't talk about, please don't talk about religion at this party. <laughs> or please don't do what you did last time. Or whatever it is um, somebody says to you, they say this to Jacob and his family. Um, this is what Joseph, I believe, says to, um, to Jacob. What is your occupation when the Pharaoh says that? You'll say your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our ancestors, in order that you may settle in the land of Goshen, because all shepherds are abhorrent to the Egyptians. Joseph is smart enough. He knows how racist the Egyptians are against himself and probably against other groups as well that have sought employment in Egypt. So he knows the best land for sheep and goats and maybe some cattle. And he, he manipulates the situation so that they will be able to be far away from the palace in Goshen, um, far away from the scrutiny of the Pharaoh. Joseph knows the Pharaoh. He knows what he's like, and he knows that this will not be a good situation. So he manipulates the situation just as he has manipulated like so many situations of this famine. Manipulation here is a survival technique. It's not a, um, a thing to benefit Joseph. It's a thing to save his family. Um, this is what he knows about life there. And so he does this, um, an act of love for these people that hurt him. His own family uh, betrayed him and, and hurt him and nearly killed him, attempted to kill him. And here he is showing this kind of love for his family. Um, he knows that the, the Egyptians abhorred the shepherds. There is a, some contemporary Amarna tablets um, and other written records of shepherd people invading Egypt somewhere around this time. The Hyksos people with their weird shaped swords um, in Egyptian hieroglyphics and other sources. Um, many have identified this statement with with uh, that invasion of Egypt, um, and also a myriad of other theories on how um, how this Hyksos invasion of Egypt may have affected the descendants of Joseph and Jacob in Egypt. Um, later, it says there was a pharaoh who grew up and did not remember Joseph in just a very short period of time. So um, that may be that invasion as well. So it's hard to know from putting the historical record together with the biblical uh, record. But just because they don't line up completely doesn't mean 
there were other events that we don't know about. The absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, as some have said. And so the, um, this is where they settle. The number 66 is significant. Um, blessings, Mike. Um, the number 66 is because this is to, to show you that they're going to go from 66 people in a short period of time to a really, really, really large number. And this is the thing that can, ends up concerning the Pharaoh who doesn't remember Joseph. He sees this large number of people being born as a t- potential threat to his sovereignty. But that number is significant, the list of names, kind of like the names on the Mayflower. Um, the names of the Mayflower are significant um, because from them um, come a lot of people that eventually populate North America. Um, and this is like the Mayflower names of here. Um, and this is the disaster. The policies that Joseph put in place to say, survive the famine eventually become the policies that enslave his own descendants. Um, and this is another part of the story. But this is to set up this great drama of salvation. Um, they are saved by Egypt, and then Egypt enslaves them. Um, we often like to think of the world as good and evil and people as being good and evil um, and big institutions being either good or evil. The truth is, if you've ever been involved in anything in life, you know there's a mixture of good and evil. There's a lot going on in every institution, including your own family, that is both good and both evil, both uh, beneficial to human flourishing and squelching human flourishing. And things can be a lot of things at once. Egypt is that for Joseph's family. Um, it is a place of where they've, it's literally saved their lives. It's also the place that they will settle in. But ultimately, um, this is not where God has, has called them to settle. Even though this is a temporary measure to survive, this is not the final story of their life. And Jacob will die knowing that his son is alive. Um, that he has found that hope again. I don't know what life lesson to draw from this, other than the fact that life is complicated and we don't really know what we're doing all the time. Most of the time, we're just surviving. Um, We are looking for love in every place and sometimes in the wrong places. We are hoping to make it through the day sometimes, make it through the week, Um, and sometimes... Uh, We don't really know what's happening in the bigger picture. But we know from these stories that God is at work. God is working through the details of our lives, through the changes and chances, through the uncertainties, from the things we do just to survive, from the things, the choices we have to make that aren't really good, many good, don't give us a lot of good options, but these are the ones we have. Um, And so these survivors survive in the land of Egypt, even though they are very aware, at least Joseph is very aware, that they will be hated in this land. They will be abhorred, is the word. They will be abhorrent to the Egyptians because they despise shepherds and people that tend flocks. When we think of the birth of Jesus, the first people to announce his birth that aren't members of his family are shepherds. Um, They are descendants of this tribe of Jacob, living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. They are not 
in the grand scheme of human history, the kind of people that you'd want to attend a royal birth. They are the shepherds. Even in the time of Jesus, they are not well thought of. They are still the lower tiers of society when it comes to jobs that people do. And yet they are the ones that are announced the birth of Jesus. Jesus is always being announced to shepherds, to the poor of this world, to the people that are on the bottom of the press and crush of society. And it is through um, those people, through the shepherds of this world, that the good news is announced. And the shepherds go out and tell everybody about the birth of Jesus. So God is still calling shepherds. God is still announcing the good news to shepherds, um, many of whom are, are like us, um, people that are just out there in the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night. Amen. How the poor of this world are the ones who God works through. My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the lowliness of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath magnified me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him throughout all generations. He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seat, and hath exalted the humble and meek. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. He, remembering his mercy, hath holpen his servant Israel, as he promised to our forefathers, Abraham and his seed forever. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Today, the church remembers a modern saint. If you go to Westminster Abbey today in England, in London, you will see, or actually technically in Westminster, um, is a separate borough of London, um, you will see a statue on the front of that church, and one of them is Oscar Romero. Um, Even though he was a Roman Catholic, he is there on that Anglican cathedral as a modern martyr. And we killed him. He is one of the victims of the Cold War. Um, He died in 1980. He was a bishop in El Salvador that was part of a movement to uh, care for the needs of the exploited poor in El Salvador. El Salvador was going through political turmoil. And you can read about this for yourself. Um, But in the global Cold War that many of you lived through and experienced, I certainly did, Um, I'm old enough for that, Um, there there were many proxy wars. Um, There were many uh, places in South and Central America that the CIA and our government um, sought to to, uh, stop the movements of the communists or leftists and various other names that they had. Um, and in that, in that struggle against communism, which the U.S. saw as a, saw as a threat to, to our sovereignty, um, we set ourselves against many popular movements of poor people. Um, and I'm not here to tell you 
what they should have done back then or what they should have done differently. I mean, these are hard things to untangle. Um, to put it simplistically would be to do it to be dishonest. But we know now um, through the CIA records that the CIA was funding, empowering, arming um, groups of, of uh, police and hit, hit squads and assassination squads to kill leaders of, of uh, movements of the people in El Salvador. And one of those men that was paid to do that took a high-powered rifle uh, to a church in El Salvador um, and parked the car out in front of the church, opened the door, took a high-powered rifle out, aimed the rifle down the center aisle of the cathedral and shot the man saying mass. And that man, that priest, that bishop, was Oscar Romero. The blood that poured out of his body dripped onto the host that he was consecrating, the bread of the communion. And that's how he died. Um, In a show of uh, solidarity, so to speak, the U.S. government, Ronald Reagan, said he would track down the killer, um, find out who did it. And surprisingly, they never found who did it, although everybody knew. Um, the names of the men that shot him. And they were part of a hit squad that the CIA funded. Um, the, the, this, was, um, this, this was a shot heard around the world in many ways. And it exposed the, the, what was happening in El Salvador to a larger public. And one of the things that was happening was that many local priests were joining with the popular movements of their people, their congregations, their flocks out in the hills that were being terrorized by anti-communist militias and hit squads, just just killing people in mass. Um, people that have visited there have told me personally about, they were there during this time, told me about um, all the dead bodies they saw from these hit squads. Um, One of Oscar Romero's influences, another priest um, that was part of this movement, said this. He said, when I say, blessed are the poor, quoting Jesus, they say, they call me a Christian. When I ask, why are they poor? They call me a communist. You see the difference there? (laughs) That it's one thing to say, blessed are the poor. If you say, why are people poor? Um, They call me a communist. So, the, the church leaders were not particularly invested in communism as much as they were invested in caring for the poor and doing something about it with the resources that they had. Um, so much of poverty is not caused by, um, by misfortune. It is caused by systemic um, exploitation. There is enough to go around. Believing that is a step of faith, and Oscar Romero believed that. And for his, uh, the day before, he had called on soldiers um, in the El Salvadorian hit squads and militias and army to not obey unlawful orders. In other words, orders to kill non-combatants, to kill um, people that were not involved in, the, in what they were talking, or just to kill peaceful protesters. He denounced that publicly in a sermon the day before he was killed by this hit squad. So remember Oscar Romero? Um, and, also, and also, nine months later, 
four nuns were and a lay missioner were also murdered um, by the El Salvadorian army hit squads. And then again, about months later, six Jesuit priests, their housekeeper, and the housekeeper's daughter were also murdered um, in 1989. So these are not um, distant events from our, our time today. Let us pray. Almighty God, who didst call thy servant Oscar Romero to be a voice for the voiceless people and to give his life as a seed of freedom and a sign of hope, grant that, inspired by his sacrifice and the example of the martyrs of El Salvador, we may without fear or favor witness to thy word who abides, thy word who is life, even Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with thee and the Holy Spirit be praise and glory, now and forever. Amen. Colic for Mission on page 58. O God, who hast made of one blood all the peoples of the earth, and did send thy blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far off and those who are near, grant that people everywhere may seek after thee and find thee. Bring the nations into thy fold, pour out thy Spirit upon all flesh, and hasten the coming of thy kingdom. Through the same thy Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.